Hello, Boise Euclid once again. It's, it is good to be with you once again. I am so grateful for the opportunity to preach and share. Thank you for this. Um, it is, it's exciting for me to continue in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's fun to do back-to-back -back sermons, and, and I'll, I'm looking forward to weaving in some of last week's sermon into this week as well. But I, I believe, once again, I want to reiterate this, I believe in faith that God's grace has drawn us together right here, even in this virtual space, and, and me even in this particular time and place, right? I believe God's grace is at work. And so as a Christian disciple, uh, as, as a follower of Jesus, I also believe in the necessity to intentionally create spaces of fellowship. Fellowship of worship, sure, like this even virtually, or together when we, when we are able, but creating spaces of fellowship. And speaking of fellowship, I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. <laughs> we believe in intentionally creating fellowships, communities, as extensions of the bride on campuses throughout the U.S., right? Our vision is simple. It's to see students fully trans, uh, students and faculty transformed and campuses renewed and world changers developed. We exist to help create these spaces of diverse discipleship communities where friendship and fellowship can happen and the opportunity to help one another navigate the conversion of faith in life. But again, we, InterVarsity, sure, and the church most definitely need to be intentional uh, and our intentionality must come from a deep calling from God. I believe that deep calling is to introduce people to redemption, to Jesus. I trust that God is with us, uh, working, working in this moment, in these moments together, working in our lives separately and in our communities as well. But I believe God is, is working in seen and unseen redemptive ways. Yet this posture that I'm talking about, this redemptive posture of believing and trusting is often difficult because redemption, as we even talked about last week, it often seems elusive. And maybe even this week, this particular week for us as Americans, redemption may seem even non-existent. But maybe, maybe that's because we're looking for redemption in the wrong places. So at first glance, the verses in Matthew 23, excuse me, may not seem like they're about redemption. But once again, I think Jesus reveals something in a way we just don't expect, or at least I don't expect. So I'd like to read the gospel, the word of the Lord from the gospel of Matthew this morning, chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples. The legal experts and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, you must take care to do everything they say, but don't do what they do. For they tie together heavy packs that are impossible to carry. They put them on the shoulders of others, and but are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do, they do to be noticed by others. They make extra wide prayer bands on their arms and long tassels for their clothes. They love to sit in places of honor at banquets, and they love to be greeted with honor in the markets and to be addressed as rabbi. But you shouldn't be called rabbi. But you shouldn't be called rabbi because you have one teacher, 
and all of you are brothers and sisters. Don't call anybody on earth your father because you have one father who is heavenly. Don't be called teacher because Christ is your one teacher. But the one who is greatest among you will be your servant. All who lift themselves up will be brought low. But all who make themselves low will be lifted up. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So last week we found Jesus in discourses in the temple, like we do right now. Last week we saw the tenaciousness of, their, of, the, of these religious leaders to try and squelch Jesus' following and influence. And earlier in Matthew, we know that the Pharisees had met together to find a way to trap Jesus in his words, to hopefully put an end to his crazy teaching, his instructions, and, and this ongoing invitation to the kingdom of God family thing. We know that Jesus said some tough things, but he also said some harsh words too. In fact, according to scholars, uh, the, the 12 verses, these 12 verses that we just read are prior to the most harshest words recorded by Jesus, of which all of these words are reserved for the religious leaders. Jesus's harshest words are to the ones who have abused God's word and oppressed others, claiming that it was necessary to act and live this way according to God's law and order. Now let's remember this passage is surrounded by not only uncomfortable confrontations, but situated in conversations about judgment, about policy, about resurrection, about lordship, about loves, and what it means to live with, I believe, a proper posture as one's created in the image of God. Now, we're actually, if we remember from last week, we are witnessing the last time that Jesus will meet with the religious leaders in the Gospel of Matthew, until the garden and his arrest. Like last week's verses of chapter 22, I believe there's also an invitation into more than a mere conversation about Jesus in these verses. And, and, and I believe we're invited into a revelation of who Jesus is as well as an invitation to be a part of that ongoing revelation ourselves. See, Jesus, <clears throat> right now, he turns and directs his, intent, his instructions and his teaching and invitation of humble living to the crowds and to the disciples. He turns his attention from those who pride themselves in knowing it all to those willing, I believe, of accepting all of him. See, he turns his attention away from those who pride themselves in knowing it all to those willing to accept all of him, even if there's still uncertainty in their hearts and minds. It's important to realize that Jesus truly understands even that uncertainty. He understands these people. He understands their concerns. Jesus truly understood the Israelites. Remember, he was a fully young Jewish man. He was an Israelite. He also took the time as a young Jewish man to engage in those concerns. 
as well as the Son of God, right? We must understand that Jesus took the time to engage. He engaged in conversations about the temple, regarding the temple, Matthew chapter 12. He engaged in concerns about Sabbath commandments, Matthew 12. He engaged in conversations about politics and leadership, all of Matthew chapter 5, right? He engaged in, 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 under, in the understanding and, and conversations about taxes and tithing. And he engaged in their concerns about law and order, Matthew chapter 23. As well as, I believe, Jesus took time uh, to engage in their concerns about religious festivals and living as exiled and enslaved people. This passage is no different. <laughs> Jesus offers a redemptive way of living even while being oppressed. I believe this is revealed in, those, in these verses. It might even be said that the redemption pointed to here, especially in verse 12, is less about brand new things and more about all things being made new. So to the disciples and the crowd, he says, take care to do everything they say, but don't do what they do. See, Jesus is not condemning Judaism or the law or the words given by the prophets. No, not at all. He's offering fulfillment instead. Jesus is not about eradication, but redemption. All throughout Matthew, we encounter God in Jesus fulfilling what was spoken by the prophet. See, this phrase right here, fulfilling what was spoken about the prophet, this phrase is actually uttered 10 different times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. While it's not specifically said in these verses, in these 12 verses, I believe Matthew, again, wants us to see Jesus, the Christ, fulfilling or bringing to fuller meaning God's intended purposes for law and humanity. Jesus came to give us all of our fullest meaning and redemptive purposes, just not how we expect. But it was always everything Jesus did to bring about fullness was centered and hinged on love. So Jesus takes the time to remind the people here that what the religious leaders say, verse 3, what they say in word pointed to the Father. It pointed to God's intended purposes. It did reveal the Messiah, the Christ, the word that was in the beginning and now the word that was in flesh before them. But the religious leaders' lives the way they lived, their way of living, the oppression that they put on others, and even their interpretations of the law and order of things did not point to Yahweh or reveal the Messiah. So essentially, these religious leaders missed the Messiah in the scriptures, and they missed him right in front of them in flesh. So let's... Uh, Let's remember some of these characters again, right? Some of these, these people that Jesus is talking about and to. The Pharisees, right? The, they, the Pharisees were the religious lawyers. Ethics over theology because the law was everything. Simply, it, for them, it was the love of rules of law over the giver of law. And then we have the Sadducees, the priestly aristocracy. Uh, Moses in the temple over theology, so to speak. The temple was everything. Simply, we could say it was the love of the temple space over the God of the temple. And then we have the scribes, right? They were the, they were the popular professors and influencers, 
political leaders. And for them, it was the love of their political influence and knowledge over the God who gives knowledge. In this passage, we find out that while the religious leaders literally wrote God's scriptures from Exodus and Deuteronomy, these scriptures about loving God and loving others, while they literally wrote them on their arms and on their foreheads, they fell short of living redemptively and lovingly like the scriptures speak of. And while they sought holy seats, uh, even the bench in front of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, a holy place, while they sought to live, sit in a holy place, they lived contrary to holiness. One author says this, Israel's purpose was to show that there was a better way to order societies and in so doing positively influence nations around them including nations that oppressed them, like Rome. So while these Jewish leaders wore verses speaking about God's liberating character, they had forgotten to reflect it toward one another, as well as towards the nations outside of their faith. So Jesus specifically says, don't do what they do. Don't do what they do, which is what they do is that they are unwilling to lift a finger to move things. They do everything to be noticed. They love the seats of honor and they want to, to, be, they want to be greeted with honor everywhere they go. They want to be noticed even in the market spaces because of their status. Don't do what they do. In other words, they, these religious leaders seem to love themselves over God or the other. They were more interested in bringing notice to themselves than bringing notice to God. They were more interested in a Jew abiding by the letter of the law instead of revealing the love of the law. According to Jesus, this is illegitimate leadership and not fit to be followed as an example. This was never God's intended purpose for life or leadership. Israel was to lead and live by being a blessing to all nations, including its own people. Now, we are all, all of us in the art of becoming. And so we all follow and love someone or something so much that it shapes us into what we're becoming. Most often, what we love most is what the world sees displayed in our everyday, ordinary actions and living, right? Therefore, it's imperative, I believe, for us to ask ourselves, what or who do we love most? What love is the world really seeing? The world insists this, I believe, that, that redemption, it comes from certain people or places or things. And we talked some about this last week, right? But the, the world seems to insist that redemption comes from, from things like a nation, a particular candidate, an election, <laughs> a result of an election, <laughs> degrees or, or status or fame or, or, or money or sexuality, uh, sexuality or just me, myself, and I. See, this was much like the religious leaders. And when this happens, we lose focus, just like the religious leaders. 
The religious leaders lost focus on the God who loved and chose them since the beginning. A statement that God declares over them in Jeremiah through the prophet Jeremiah, through the words. He says, as Israel searched for a place of rest, I, remind, I come to remind you, my children, that I loved you with a love that lasts forever. And so, with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. And I have loved you, I do love you, and I will never stop loving you. So, maybe these religious leaders live this way out of fear, or out of exhaustion, or maybe just out of selfish ambition. Either way, according to Jesus, we are not to do what they do. We should know better. So this gives me great pause. And I think it should give the church great pause. What are those things that we love most? Those things that have become idols that, that inhibit us to live, to live lovingly and redemptively. Do we know better? See, these words for the religious leaders could be reserved for us too, I believe. For me. So I must ask myself, I must ask myself, how often do I burden others and not help? How often do I see others burdened by life, oppression, systemic injustices, and do nothing? When at the very least, I could listen, I could lament, I could pray. How often do I think that if it doesn't really affect me, it's not really my problem? Is that actually serving? Or how often do I seek places of prestige and honor or accolade at the cost of others just to be noticed? How often do I let pride drive my actions and in turn develop a self-centered character that's unwilling to make myself low? It's tough. <laughs> I get it. It's tough for all of us. We seriously, in this day and age, live in a platform culture. What I mean is, we live in a platform culture from a traditional pulpit like what I'm doing, whether it's virtual or inside a church building, so from a traditional pulpit for preachers to a lectern for political candidates, we live in a platform culture. From a photo on a billboard to being an influencer on Instagram, we live on a platform culture. From making sure everybody knows our relationship status on Facebook to a grand gender reveal party of our baby on TikTok, we live in a platform culture. We live in such a culture. And while, hear me, while it's not inherently sinful, I don't believe it's sinful to reveal the gender of our babies or post a pic on Instagram. I believe we must take the time as disciples, as followers of Jesus, to ask ourselves, who's our real instructor or teacher, influencer? What is our real motivation? Martin Luther King Jr., while he was preaching a sermon, he said these words. He said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. 
The true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. In dangerous valleys, in hazardous pathways, he will lift some bruised and beaten brother to a higher and more noble life. There are some who still find the cross a stumbling block, and others consider it foolishness. But I am more convinced than ever, more convinced than ever before, that it is the power of God unto social and individual salvation. So like the Apostle Paul, I can now humbly yet proudly say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus for the sake of my brother and my sister. Who are we wanting to point to in our everyday lives, whether on social media, walking through a neighborhood? Who are we wanting to point to? I must also ask, what do we truly seek to reveal? Or better yet, what is revealed in our lives in times of crisis? discomfort, or possible oppression. What is it that we seek? Is it the best seat in the house to raise ourselves up? Or the lowly spot in order to point to the one raised up on the cross? Jesus instructs his followers in this account to raise up Jesus. <laughs> he instructs his followers to be humble servants, verse 12. While the world loves to tell us that mercy is for the weak, because they do. They, the world loves to tell us that forgiveness is for losers, kindness doesn't get you first place, and serving is most definitely not being the boss. In essence, I believe Jesus here is calling us to be humble disruptors. Disruptors of the status quo, that status quo. That we are called to live counterculturally, Jesus style, where, where that messes the world up, but is absolutely redemptive. In other words, the one who is greatest among you will be your servant. Simply, I believe servants in this essence find a way to make or create space for the other. They find to they find a way to create space for the other physically, mentally spiritually, including heart space. Servants still do things, but they point beyond themselves to the source of that doing. Still, servants still know things, but they point beyond themselves to the source of that knowledge. Servants still worship, but they point beyond that particular place of worship to the spirit and truth of worship, Jesus. Servants are still religious, but their religion is relational over transactional, and servants, they work at trying to remember that the law never supersedes loving God and loving their neighbor, which is honestly what all the law depends on. Followers of Jesus are, are more than welcoming we should be more than welcoming. We should be hospitable. And being hospitable requires creating nonviolent spaces for the other. And the other is 
a stranger, a friend, or an enemy. And creating this space, it requires humility. This way of living can be difficult. It can be dangerous even. It, because honestly, taking up one's cross can cost us our lives. But no one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. So while dangerous, it's also fully redemptive. And I believe it's full of peace. When we go out and live as Jesus is instructing here in Matthew, it'll take effort to make ourselves low. Making requires work. But it'll be transformative, where we just might move from not only being humble servants of others, but also humble servants who are friends of God. And this transformation brings absolute peace. Just most likely, it's a peace that passes understanding. I'm reminded here of the Chronicles of Narnia. I love these books. My, uh, we love reading these books as a family over and over again. Throughout these books, we encounter Aslan. And for Lewis, he's the, the Christ character, so to speak. And in these books, we're reminded um, by the other characters that Aslan, see, quote, he's no tame lion, right? And, and if you get through the books and you get to the final book called The Last Battle, one of the characters says this about, about Aslan. And, and about the way that they trust and believe in Aslan. They say, we live between the paws of the great Aslan, and he is no tame lion. You see, for the children, he's wild, big, and yet one whom the children could trust and they could obey. For they knew even if they could not see Aslan, even if Aslan physically wasn't with them all the time, he was with them still. And for the children, living between the paws of Aslan was the most beautifully dangerous and yet most wonderfully peaceful place to be. I couldn't think, I couldn't think of a better tension to trust my whole being so, and, and self to than, than, than to be in the hands of Christ, the hands of Jesus, right? In fact, Paul, see, he helps us live into this tension well by offering us practical ways on how to navigate it. He says to this early, these early Christians in, in, the, in the city of Colossae, he says this, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you. Above all, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and mask uh, virtually or together. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, we, we faith-believing and trusting Christians, the church, we're, we're called and sent in the Gospels as peaceful witnesses. Kind of like mustard seeds that spread with every little mustard seed of kindness, gentleness, hopefulness, and loving gesture. 
where the birds see the others, the other nations, the, the strangers, the aliens, our immediate neighbors. See, they can rest in our branches there. They can rest in redemption. Peace was the first message Jesus delivered after the resurrection. Has he entered into those locked rooms of fear? Peace be with you. The same peace I have, I give you, he said. Therefore, as I have been sent, so I send you, as ones who come to serve, not to be served. But I send you not alone so that you can do this. I send you the enabler, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, will empower you to be humble, peaceful, serving witnesses, no matter your circumstances. So even if the world keeps trying to tell us that we should be the center of our, universe, of our universe or the center of the universe, we can trust that in light of the resurrection, the spirit of peace is with us, enabling us to live fully and flourishing where we love, forgive, and humbly serve as part of God's redemptive work of love. Not only praying, God's kingdom and will coming come on earth, uh, all of this earth and this earth as it is in heaven, not only praying that, but actively participating it corporately as the bride. So I believe we can live as the prophet spoke too. <laughs> See, we can live like the prophet Micah said, where we live acting justly. That is being honest and full of integrity and uprightness. And we can live loving mercy where we are empathetic, supportive of one another, and compassionately driven. And we can live walking humbly. That is, stepping in a daily relational redemptive work that's fully dependent on God and interdependent on the family of God. And in the end, in the end, in light of, I believe, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, We've been taught and are enabled to love one another redemptively. To love one another where Jesus' law is love and his gospel is peace. And chains, no matter the type of chains, shall he break. For the slave is our brother and sister. And in the name of Jesus, lived out through our lives as humble servants, and friends of Christ living between the paws. I believe all oppression shall cease. Redemption will be revealed and embraced. And Christ will be lifted high. Peace of the Lord be with you. Go and be redemptive humble servants of peace.